this is Cinema Roundtable. My name's Jake, and today I'm joined by Erica. Thanks for having me again. And who is this? Welcome back, Bo! (laughs) Thanks for having me. Oh my goodness, (laughs) this is so exciting. We're so excited to have you back. I know that um, you've been out since the since the best of 2021 but it's fun we had a smaller group and it was just the perfect opportunity for Bo to come back and join us again yes thank you for having me back I can be available to fill in whenever somebody can't be here so uh that's what I'm doing I had some free time tonight and uh it's a Sunday night why not why not happy to be here it's always fun to have to have um to have you here, or like to to mix it up, hear a familiar voice and and stuff like that. Like obviously, we wish that Lexi and Jared could be with us, and Stefan for that matter. I yeah, mean, it'd be he's, great. He's also welcome back. Stefan, if you're listening, come back whenever you feel like it. I know you <laughs> you got small children at home that are probably more pressing, but um, but we'd always love to have you back. But um, yeah, our feature film tonight is the new Jordan Peele film. Nope, which uh, for me was one of the most anticipated films of 2022. Um, for someone who is only been in the the director game, I would say for a short period of time, I don't think there's really many people that have much more anticipation just in the grand scheme, both in kind of the horror genre, but also kind of the mainstream movie genre as Jordan Peele. I mean... I look at someone like an Ari Aster who also only has two films, but I think he kind of gets kept more in that horror genre mm-hmm. where I think Jordan Peele can kind of transcend both of those. I mean, it doesn't uh, hurt you that your first film was nominated for Best Picture. So, yeah, um, came out swinging with that. For one. sure. <laughs> um, let's, are we, were, was this kind of up there for both of you for anticipated films? It's, nope. Yes, definitely. It was, yeah. <laughs> I feel like there's going to be a lot of nope. I see what you did there. Related. <laughs> yes. Which the movie does do in its runtime is make fun of that, mm-hmm. uh, that name and, and play with it in fun ways. But yeah, that was, it was, uh, definitely up there because I enjoyed, uh, us, the previous film quite a bit, but get out, was my favorite movie of that year. I think it was 2017. Um, I was so happy to see all of the great uh, reception toward that one and to see it nominated for stuff. So um, that one has stuck around in my mind for sure. So I was really excited to see what Jordan Peele's next film was all about. Yeah, Yeah, I I mean, anytime a genre film can get extra recognition from critics um, Mm -hmm. and the Academy is always great for me because I feel like a lot of people, I mean, we talked about it when we talked about the Academy um briefly in a previous episode that sometimes we don't always agree with kind of the direction that they like to do kind of um giving more of a warm reception to kind of more cookie cutter dramas type of stuff so when you get something like this or even like shape of water from a few Mm -hmm. years ago um or or parasite i mean another pseudo horror i don't know if you want to call it i mean that's basically every genre but um it's just fun to see that but erica was this also one of yours from the moment I saw the teaser trailer, which was so creepy, but also very vague, where it's like, is this an alien movie? Like, what is this? This is weird. But I was like, yeah, I have to see this. This is going to be amazing. Or it better be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's the thing with those with those highly anticipated people. There's also a lot of added pressure to the yeah. for it to be good. And I think that there's an expectation that um, is always going to be high mm-hmm. with his films, even um, if... 
some don't live up to. I mean, I think Get Out being his first and biggest one, it's kind of setting the bar really, really high. Yes. But fortunately, and we'll get more into this when we get into our discussion on Nope, um, he can kind of still put his tricks to it and uh, and do a good job. But before that, we're going to do some smaller reviews. And Erica actually has a bunch of oh. mini reviews that she wants to start out with. So um, I know that you're talking about The Black Phone, Crimes of the Future, a few other ones. But Erica, why don't you take it away? Okay, so yeah, I have been on a movie watching binge of course they are all horror movies um what? this has been a really good summer if you're a horror <laughs> fan i know it's like shocking right um so last month i watched uh crimes of the future and black phone in the theater uh crimes in the future i think is a great return to form for david cronenberg um instead of this i don't know kind of bsc i don't know some of some of these dramas he did were like i'm gonna die of boredom it's not that if you like his earlier work you will like crimes of the future it sort of uh has elements of existence and crash especially the crash vibe with this it's uh um there's a lot of erotic surgery in this movie we'll put it that way that leaves <laughs> it kind of spoiler free um black phone is like very solid i Granted, somewhat predictable. I mean, you can tell it's going to end a certain way, um, but uh, it is still a very well done movie. I was still invested in the characters. Great 1970s vibe, great 1970s soundtrack. Um, some nods to other classic films like um, Fritz Lang's M, for example, when you see some balloons floating away after a child is abducted. Mm. Um so yeah, I, I do recommend that one. And also the killer's mask is definitely iconic. And that was like co-designed by uh, Tom Savini. And Tom Savini. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Who, um, yeah. Uh, George Romero regular um, did a lot of the makeup effects for him. Um, he also is an actor in some of his films yes, as he well. Acted in several movies. He was in uh, like the grindhouse double feature. Yes. He was. In he was. From Dusk, Dusk till dawn. And um also, he acted in some early films, too, like uh, William Lustig's Maniac. He um, played oh. a victim where oh, he okay, built yeah. a fake head that looked like his own head and then used a shotgun to blow it up. So he, like, well, yeah, that, yeah, killed his effigy in, in that movie. In, yeah, in Dawn of the Dead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they... Uh, or, or Maniac is the one where he, like... Well, but, his own head. but he did but that in Dawn of the in Dead. In Dawn of the well. Dead, ah, okay. one of the most famous uh, <laughs> uh, effects in that is there's a scene at the very beginning where the two, I can't even remember what, Flyboy, one of the two of the main characters that both, all of the characters have very generic names in Dawn of the Dead. That's neither here nor there. They bust in and there's a man standing, a man in quotations, um, standing there and they blow his head off essentially yeah. with a shotgun. Yeah. But what they did is they did a, 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 a head casing of actually the actress because the final shot this isn't a spoiler because it never happened in the movie she was especially she was supposed to die by getting her head caught in the hel helicopter propeller but they decided to cut that from the film but they still had a casing so they painted it <laughs> a different color <laughs> and they said what do we want to do with this so they filled it up with dog food and craft services stuff mm -hmm. and they had them shoot it with a shotgun tom savini just shot it with a shotgun and it just explodes and and it's great if you catch the however many frames you can definitely tell that it's a prosthetic head but it's just a really fun effect that i thought that was a little bit of fun trivia nice, about yeah. tom savini great, great so, way to salvage that i know right save well, a little bit on the production i know that with romero in general with kind of tom savini he just trusted him so much that he would basically just say if you have a interesting kill 
just run it by me and we'll figure out how to do it in the movie and we'll kind of incorporate it into the story. I know with Dawn of the Dead in particular, that movie is shot so run and gun style that they were just kind of like, we'll throw this in, we'll throw this in, we'll throw this in and just kind of let him play a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's just kind of that fun kind of uh, anarchic style that Romero had a little bit. But Oh yeah, definitely. And uh, for people who want to look for horror movies on streaming services, there have been some really solid ones on shutter. Um, There's this creepy occult thriller called the long night, which is uh, super atmospheric. Uh, This couple goes to a, cabin and kind of an isolated area and that always goes well in horror movies um, they're, they're surrounded by some strange uh cult that has a particular interest in the uh the wife or girlfriend uh character um i won't give anything away um there's uh, another one that i really enjoyed uh, it's a foreign film called on the third day and for some reason shutter only doesn't have the original language they have english dubbing in it it's very well done dubbing but a lot of people were complaining in the reviews like how dare you shutter for putting only a dubbed option in and not like the, the original mm-hmm. language with subtitles but it's it's well done enough that you don't even really notice after a certain point and it's still definitely worth seeing this movie uh it's about a woman whose son just goes missing after she and the son are in a car accident together and he just like disappears off the highway there's this other character who uh is like kind of a religious fanatic and seems to be a serial killer but as the film goes on there is a monster of a completely different type so there are some twists there um if you want something more comedic, there is a really fun movie called Bloody Hell that has a lot of action and humor and just really funny one-liners. Where's Bloody Hell? Also at? on Shudder. Cool. As I think we've mentioned in a previous uh, pod, Shudder, anytime you want to throw a sponsorship, we would love it. <laughs> oh, that'd be um, awesome. <laughs> yeah, what? <laughs> we've repped so many movies, and Erica in particular, um, on, this, on this show that I think it's about time. Alamo... And 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 them get about the most shout outs, yeah. I think, of anyone. And I will bring in, be bringing up Alamo Drafthouse again when I get to my longer uh, movie review for our intro. Well, there's a bunch of different titles for you if you're <laughs> looking for something in the horror genre. A little bit of everything, it sounds like. <laughs> but um, we're going to shift over to something that I bet was equally as terrifying. Yeah, right, the, Bo? the horrific, terrifying, violent and gory film, <laughs> Marcel the Shell with Shoes On. Uh, <laughs> No, this is actually as about as different from our featured film uh, that we're doing today, Nope, as possible. Uh, so hopefully the contrasts is welcome and uh, makes sense. But are you too familiar with the concept of Marcel the Shell? Do you have you seen the original shorts on YouTube? No, Erica, no. shaking your head. <laughs> yes, I okay. I was a big fan of the original shorts. I just thought they were fun, quirky little videos. Um, I've always been a, a fan of Jenny Slate too. I thought yeah. she's always been funny, but I never really followed up because they were kind of, they're probably how old at this point? The original one. The original came out in 2010 actually. And then they released two more shorts after that. So I'll give you a, a brief synopsis of what mm-hmm. Marcel the shell, the character is uh, Marcel, the shell is a seashell that has a googly eye and shoes and is animated in stop motion. Um, and was originally released on YouTube as a short film, like three and a half minutes, uh, in 2010. And the director uh, and creator is Dean Fleischer Camp, 
and he collaborated with Jenny Slate, who is an actress, uh, comedian, uh, writer, and uh, also provides the voiceover uh, performance for Marcel uh, to create this story. And it's really not a story. It's very minimal. Um, and again, I'm still talking about the shorts. Um, it's really just Dean Fleischer Camp being this disembodied voice um, off camera filming Marcel the Shell. And Marcel the Shell is just stating a lot of facts and saying goofy things. Um, uh, a lot of things like, uh, when I use a beanbag chair, it's a raisin, and I use a Dorito to hang glide and stuff. So it's mm -hmm. like all these humorous little quirky things. Um, and and Marcel kind of has like this squeaky, high-pitched voice. Uh, so just a quirky character uh, that never really went anywhere story-wise. Uh, all of the sequels were kind of non-sequiturs. They just sort of happened, and they're a moment that's a glimpse into this character for about three or four minutes, and then you're done. So... You're caught up on who Marcel the Shell is, basically. <laughs> but so now we get this movie. It's a 90-minute feature-length film. And lots of people are really excited about this because Marcel the Shell, I was looking on YouTube today, the original one has like over 30 million views. Um, its sequels had many millions of views as well. And some people, like my wife, loves Marcel the Shell, has seen those shorts, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of times. I had watched the first short many years ago, like around 2011, 2012, understood what it was, but wasn't like eager for more, wasn't ready to devour a bunch of Marcel the Shell content, right? It wasn't like my jam 100%. <laughs> it's not something I would seek out. So that's my history with the series. Um, but I still had this fascination with Marcel the Shell with Shoes On, the feature length film, because I was interested. How do you turn a series of like three or four minute shorts into a feature length film. Like they're making a 90 minute film out of this concept. What is that going to look like? And the premise of the sketch or of the, the shorts don't have an overlaying premise to them either to, yeah. e to even stretch out. Right. Um, but what the film does is it takes the, the most basic version. If you had to extract a, a premise from those shorts, it would be that this guy is, is doing a mockumentary about this character and just doing a portrait of Marcel. So that's what they start with in this movie. And uh, what I was interested in as well is that Dean Fleischer Camp, I had heard that he plays a more prominent role in this feature length film, playing himself. So the story set up for this is Marcel lives in a house with a community and a family of other shells. So there are dozens of these shell uh, creatures that Marcel lives with. And the people who own the house are a man and a woman who are in a relationship, but they fight all the time. And it actually gets so heated that they decide to separate. And the man leaves one night, packs up his suitcase, and in doing so, packs up most of Marcel's family with him and moves away. So Marcel is back at the house, is abandoned, basically. His family is lost and doesn't know where they went. The only other person in his family is his grandma, Connie, who's left behind. Um, so they're taken away. He's left with his grandma and his pet lint, Alan, as well, which is just a, a clump of lint tied with a, a string that he uses as a leash. Um, after the couple separates and moves away, the house is turned into an Airbnb, uh, which is kind of a modernization of mm -hmm. what this story can do. And all these people start to visit the Airbnb on vacation. And through those people, Marcel meets a lot of people, gets a lot of life experiences and steals a lot of items from different people who stay at the Airbnb. 
and then hides them in little nooks and crannies throughout the house. So Marcel, uh, the, Marcel's perspective on things really grows because of that. Well, then, uh, that is until one day, Dean Fleischer Camp, playing himself, stays at the Airbnb, and he's basically this documentary filmmaker who becomes really fascinated with Marcel, is inspired by Marcel, and they strike up this really nice friendship, and they decide to make a short film together, which ends up being the Marcel the Shell video from 2010. Okay. They make... This is where things get meta. They make the 2010 Marcel the Shell short and they upload it to YouTube because Dean thinks, oh, this is something really special. I have to capture this. They don't expect it to blow up and it does. And so Marcel has this newfound fame and now has this platform that he can use to ask for assistance in locating his family. He gains a huge following on YouTube and online. And so that's how... He's going to attempt to find his family as just putting the question out there like, does anybody know how I could find my family? So uh, I thought that this movie justified it, its existence so well. I, you know, going in, I was like, does this need to be a movie? It really does justify itself. It ties in the director and the original short um, with a synergy that makes so much sense. Um, it carries a lot of the little bits of lore from the original shorts as well into the new film. So in one of the shorts, you learn that Marcel uses a piece of bread as a bed. Mm -hmm. uh, that's all throughout this movie. You always see his b bread bed there. Um, a lot of the jokes carry over and are repeated. Um, they also do those modern touches. There's the you know the Airbnb uh, aspect to the story. The movie takes a stab at like TikTok and influencer culture and and kind of condemns some of the negative parts of those. Um, uh, those parts of online of being online. And also the film is really beautifully shot and composed. It's kind of shot with this like uh, cinema verite style of documentary where there's lots of like close angles and natural lighting. The focus will drift back and forth a lot when you're focusing on um, Marcel. There are lots of moments where not a lot is happening too, where you're just absorbing the mood of the moment. Um, so it feels really intimate, really close and personal. Um, and then also all the environments are made up of these really cozy dioramas where everyday things are being repurposed creatively, places where Marcel sleeps and eats and hangs out with his grandma Connie. So that was really cool to see. It's just very artistic. Uh, and then the music is beautiful. Uh, the music was done by Disaster Piece, which is... Ah. Uh, you've heard of the disaster piece. Yeah, I was familiar. I remember they did it follows. That's correct. Oh, yes. Okay. Um, so I actually didn't know about disaster pieces, uh, uh, soundtrack for films, but I was familiar with disaster piece through a game called Hyperlight drifter, which has uh, really great, uh, emotional music. And that definitely carries over into here. And then the movie has little nods to documentary filmmaking that I appreciated in my job. I sometimes make, uh, pieces that resemble short documentaries. So there is terminology. There's little mm. behind the scenes wink winks in here that I really liked. Uh, and then the movie was surprisingly emotional. Uh, it's about a search for one's family. It's also about how to prioritize those who are already closest to us. And uh, there are moments that will make many people cry. And I think I heard a few sniffles in my screening uh, when certain moments happened. So uh, 
just another thing I didn't expect with Marcel the Shell with shoes on. So I think my biggest complaint with this is that the brand of humor with Marcel the Shell isn't my favorite thing enough to stay fresh for 90 minutes, um, but it also didn't become insufferable at any point. Um, it got to the point where, okay, I appreciate the jokes that are happening. I'm not laughing out loud at all of them. And this is starting to, I'm starting to uh, you know, want to get to the end a little mm -hmm. bit. But I think this movie is clever. It's poignant. Um, it's funny. It is even life affirming. Uh, and so I'm impressed with this concept being taken this far. Uh, I think A24 is continuing this really interesting trend of finding opportunities for movies in unexpected places. So uh, it, it happened with the disaster artists. Um, it happened just one or two years ago with Zola, which is basically based on a Twitter thread mm -hmm. from a stripper. Uh, mm -hmm. That became a movie. So here we are with Marcel the Shell with shoes on, and I recommend this. Yeah, I feel like A24 does a good job of kind of identifying creative people mm -hmm. and kind of knowing how to put emotional resonance in whatever that medium may be. I mean, you mentioned some great ones. Um, I actually didn't see this movie, but Red Rocket was another A24 film yes. from, from I think, last year. About a porn star. About a, a f like a washed up porn star uh, just going back to his hometown. Um, and that was another one that you could kind of see as kind of a goofy pre uh, premise. But yeah. But but turn in there. But um, that's so nice to hear because you you look at something like Marcel and it's it's a comedy which you just don't see a lot of straight up comedies anymore. Um, that's a goofy premise and they're just able to put everything into it from what it sounds. And yeah. I'm eager to look or to to watch it. Um, but is it? I assume it's still just in theaters right now. I think it's still in theaters at time of recording. It might have a week or two left by the time this episode's out. It might have left i'm not sure but it'll i'm sure you'll be able to rent it digitally soon yeah it'll probably get the amazon rental treatment here pretty soon yeah. or or maybe Redbox. even <laughs> yep um everywhere yep there you go but so that's marcel the shell with shoes on a high recommendation from Bo. yes um the film that i will be talking about tonight is the nicholas cage film the unbearable weight of massive talent um we kind of teased this film as a potential episode uh back when it first came out um and then ended up going a different direction but uh this is a a action comedy where a fictionalized version of nicholas cage who's kind of in a washed up state is contemplating retirement is offered um a million dollars by a mysterious person in spain to come attend his birthday party um and when he goes there uh there's some mix-ups with the uh, with the government and kind of a sting operation and he has to kind of act his way through um this kind of sticky situation while also developing a close personal friendship with the person that hired him um I, I would just like to say that this is the type of stuff that I like seeing in Nick Cage. Um, some of his more wild premises and, and performances, something like um, I, I did like Mandy, but something like a Willie's wonderland where it's just like, look at this crazy film that Nicholas Cage is oh, in. Yeah. <laughs> I like getting to see Nicholas Cage do kind of his wild acting, mm -hmm. but in more of like a, a, a solid uh, story structure um, that seems like they're actually kind of, they're putting a lot more care into it, in my opinion. Um, I thought Pedro Pascal, who plays the, the mysterious rich person, um, 
was fantastic in it. Um, I think the, the chemistry between Nicolas Cage and him was, um, you could feel it. You could feel the anxiousness that that character had in kind of the fanboy style <laughs> relationship that he has at the front end. Mm-hmm. And then as it develops throughout the film, um, I also loved, um, the inclusion of Nicolas Cage's kind of imaginary alter ego character, which, um, <laughs> that, that is some like real, like narcissism in that one scene we'll put it that way <laughs> if you're thinking of the scene, the scene yeah right i mean yeah. there's there's they show this character in the in the trailer but it's kind of it's kind of a devil on the shoulder type of character mm-hmm. where it's kind of like no you're a massive star like you deserve to be leading films like you can't be taking a small role in something and and um just kind of being the Nicolas Cage that I think most people see him as very vampires kiss era yep. style, uh, Nicolas Cage. Um, overall, I would say that this movie is really well done. I think it's shot very well. I do think that the story tends to be a little bit predictable at times. Um, definitely in the way that it concludes. There are also some, uh, bigger actors that are in it with Tiffany Haddish, Ike Barinholtz and Neil Patrick Harris that are kind of, underutilized in my opinion um especially neil patrick harris he's kind of right at the beginning and then right at the end um but uh overall i thought it was a very well done uh film and uh erica did you have any other thoughts that you wanted to say about it um yeah i i did get to see that in the theater when it came out and just had a lot of fun with it um and i i agree i really do like uh nicholas cage's acting in this film just because he seems more like a real person and he's not doing like extremely out there stuff like sometimes he's known for and that's kind of what i was yeah, referring exactly. to where he still gets to be wild at times but still a real person yeah, yeah yeah just not not the level of uh crazy is in some of his movies where it's like ooh, <laughs> where he's kind of leaning into the meme almost <laughs> um <laughs> But but yeah, Bo, did you get a chance to see this? No, this is on my watch list for sure. Uh, this is one of those ones from this year that I didn't anticipate as highly as Nope, but uh, didn't get a chance to catch it in theaters. So um, I don't know what's stopping me, I, I but I do want to watch this. Well, I was able to rent it on Redbox for 99 cents. So nice. um, nice. <laughs> I'm a big Redbox guy because <laughs> um, you can either rent it on Amazon for Nineteen ninety nine, I yeah, think. Still, it, I think it's still. Movies, yeah. I think it's still up in that range where that's crazy. You go get a. I got a hard copy Blu Ray for ninety nine cents. At mm-hmm. some point, they're missing out on business just because it's too high. You know, like yeah. there's a lot of people who would bite yes. at nine ninety nine and then four ninety nine and three ninety nine. Exactly. They gotta start mm-hmm. bringing that down. Yeah. Well, um, g- going back to Black Phone, um, that was a film that I just happened to miss when it was in the theaters. And and now it's on streaming. But then I learned that it was being released on Peacock in like two weeks. And I was like, I'm not going to spend the money on it to see it now. I'm just going to wait to see it when it goes on Peacock. Unbearable weight of massive talent seems like something that would hit HBO in like maybe two months from now. So I'm kind of banking on that. We'll see. It's not one that you need to run out and see if you don't if it, 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 it it's a fun film to watch um, and definitely a, a good time that I think really anyone can enjoy. Okay. Um, but uh, definitely a recommendation from me. Um, so that's the unbearable weight of massive talent. Um, I do have a, I do have yes. a question for if you were to make like a Nicolas Cage ranking oh, or just consider goodness. his filmography that oh, you've my. seen, 
what would you what would you give it uh like um how would you classify it? Like is this an A tier? Let's do tier system. Oh my A tier, B tier, S tier. Like what would you give <laughs> unbearable weight? Are we talking in terms of the quality of the movie or the most memorable Nick Cage? Uh let's do like your enjoyment of the overall experience. Oh, okay. So I would put this probably in a B tier, probably. B tier Nick Cage. B tier Nick Cage. It's not it's not as um well made as something like Pig, which last year was my second favorite movie of the that. of the year. Oh, yeah. But it's also doesn't have quite the same um hit in my opinion as something like a con air, which I think is really fun <laughs> yeah. in kind of a guilty pleasure style <laughs> of movie um or or even the national treasure films which i are nostalgic for me more than probably yep. anything else yep, but then you look at something like a leaving las vegas or a raising arizona or an adaptation or something like that that's really like oscar worthy and that you can't compare something like this and something like that and really um think that they're in the same same category it's no wicker man is as memeable oh, as as cool. wicker man okay. is or something like that um or vampire's kiss as i mentioned earlier <laughs> but uh but i would say i would say b tier um are you I, very familiar with a lot of his films uh sometimes i am and then regretted it and other times <laughs> i've really enjoyed it so i i think probably my favorite film of his is uh that he was in was mandy but i mean i, love I have mandy. some yeah, mandy is, taste yeah. you know like if you if you know what I like, you know that's probably something I would go for. Yeah. Big Cheddar Goblin fan. Yeah, and uh, Color Out of Space is up there too. Yeah, that's it's a pretty um, recent one. Mm-hmm. Color Out of Space was that a um uh, the same person that made? I'd have it, to. It was Richard Stanley who did Richard Color Stanley out, out of Space. Okay, who was supposed to do the Doctor, the Island of Doctor Moreau? Yeah, film. then yeah, that that yeah. went very. Uh, which sideways. there's a very fun uh, that, documentary, yeah, that documentary about documentary that. Documentary is great. Lost Souls is Lost what, Soul. yeah, it's a, such a great documentary. People should check it out for the laughs, even if they don't care about that particular disaster of a film. Um, but yeah, I I would probably put this like yeah B plus A minus range. Nice. Yeah. Okay. So go out and see it. <laughs> um, yeah, it it should be relatively easy to access uh, here pretty soon. Um, but we're gonna kick it back to Erica. Ooh. Um, and she's going to go into a little bit more uh, detail on a different film uh, called Mad God. And I will be uh, also thanking Shudder for uh, distributing this and Alamo Drafthouse for doing special limited screenings of it. Um, I did get to see it on the big screen Saturday. Um, so this is like technically yeah, one of the most amazing films I've seen. Um, it is stop motion animation but not funny and not life affirming unlike marcel the shell um so that's yeah, the this, through line stop motion yes, right yeah it is it's a it's a backdoor sequel to marcel the shell no. there is no stop motion in unbearable weight of massive talent i apologize <laughs> we could have had synergy there's kind of stop motion in nope that's, a little bit yeah you could yeah yeah you could possibly i don't know say that maybe Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um. So I'm. Uh, so technically, it's a combination of stop motion, live action, and puppetry, but mostly stop motion. Um. I'm talking about special effects master Phil Tippett's Mad God, which took 30 years for him to complete. He just like kept building set piece after set piece, building all these little figures, and then, um, yeah, like 
I can attest that working on a live action film is boring, um, but because there's so many retakes and you're just like sitting around on the set waiting for stuff to get set up or, uh, you know, fixing makeup or whatever. But I, I can't imagine doing a stop motion animation film. Um, it's kind of mind boggling, especially when someone does it so well that you usually can't tell that it's stop motion. Like everything's very fluid and moves very organically which is for the most part the case in this film. Although like an oddity is sometimes the actual actors uh, in the live action scenes, there, there's some manipulation of like photo speed that makes them look, or the film speed that makes them look like they're stop motion characters, which is kind of interesting. But anyway, like I would think that stop motion process would be more like uh, watching a mountain road, or maybe I've heard someone compare it to that. So like regular filmmaking is boring. This is like, watching them out in a road if you're actually involved in that process. Um, so on top of just the, the length of time it took him to make this, it, he just created this very vast twisted world full of equally like broken and twisted beings who were created solely to suffer and to cause suffering to other beings in this universe. Um, I'd say that this idea of a world being like just inherently decrepit and horrific from the moment it was created kind of harkens to Gnostic theology. But in this case, maybe without any kind of competent savior figure, um, there, the plot that's there is kind of hard to follow. Um, there's a character who sends um, assassins into this like subterranean universe that's just incredibly vast. And the assassin's giving, given this map that crumbles a little bit every time he opens it to check where he is and where he needs to go. Um, and thousands of assassins have failed before him. Like they send him down there with a suitcase full of dynamite. He's supposed to kill the God and maybe blow up this whole world um, is, is how I take it. But you keep seeing all these left behind suitcases with undetonated dynamite. So it's all the assassins before him that have failed. <laughs> um, and then he uh, gets captured and killed and then a new assassin takes his place. So there's like uh and then I won't spoil whether like the, the assassin at the end of the film succeeds or not, but there are a couple twists at the end. Um, I would say this is um, um, this this is more of like not so much of a, a plot driven film, or or at least in terms of there being any kind of linear narrative. There are these set pieces that kind of relate back to each other. You kind of see how all of the the creatures or the beings in this film play a certain role within this universe, and um, they they fulfill certain things that make this universe work in a very just weird, unpleasant, horrific way. Um, I would kind of say this is more of a philosophical film, if that philosophy is comparable to um, horror author Thomas Ligotti's uh, cosmic pessimism. Um, so and there's also there's also almost no dialogue, but there is a soundtrack that's sometimes beautiful, some kind of melancholic, sometimes very creepy. Um, definitely worth checking out. But this movie is disturbing and it's it feels very like drug fueled or like it's an actual nightmare captured on film. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm looking up. Um... Phil Tippett, and he's a six-time Academy Award nominee, mm -hmm. two-time winner, um, big with ILM, um, did things like that, one for Return of the Jedi and Jurassic Park. So you think about the special effects and stuff back in the kind of the heyday of special effects before CGI was really a thing, um, and you see like that there's a master 
at work with this, which I always love getting to see uh, those. I mean, he also was nominated for Starship Starship Troopers, which in my opinion has some of the best stop motion oh, in it yeah. as well. Yeah. And uh, RoboCop um, as RoboCop well. as well. Um, or Willow. I don't know how well the visual effects in Willow is, but he got nominated for an Academy Award for it. So I heard that might be getting a sequel, by the way. Oh, really? Or a follow-up. Wow. Okay. If that's not true, we could cut Is Warwick Dewitt Davis in it? Probably. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. Hopefully, it should be if that's true. Um, I'm looking on. Uh, I'm looking at Phil Tippett's stuff, and I noticed that they he has between 2014 and 2018 um, some shorts, Mad Gods Part Parts One through Three. Um, yeah, have so you this seen is all three combined? Oh, it is. Okay. Oh, interesting. Because okay. I see like one is eleven minutes, one is fifteen minutes, one is eleven minutes, and so this. Uh, but this film is like 83 minutes. So yeah, do you get so the sense that the, this I, is like... I think it combines all three of those parts into one okay. big narrative, as I understand. Interesting. It. So had you seen any of like the initial parts as they were coming out? I saw part one when I was with my friend uh, Andre in Russia, because he had been waiting for this movie to come out for a long time. And he's like, I got a hold of part one. You have to sit down and watch it with me. And I, I can totally see like given his filmmaking style and his philosophy, why he would be into this. Cool. <laughs> no, that that's uh, you definitely want to shout out creative people like that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and give them an opportunity. Like when, when people put this much time, 30 years into it, um, it should be celebrated um, and get a, a platform to see it. So it's a good thing that Shudder is giving it that platform. Yes, thank you, Shudder. Um, but yeah, that's Mad God. And I think that will transition us into our featured film tonight, which is Nope. Um, for uh, anyone who is unfamiliar with Nope, it uh it follows a a family that owns a a, a horse ranch that is used primarily for uh, movies and television as a um just I guess animal talent I guess um and at their farm they start to see some mysterious things in the sky um and they try to kind of um kind of investigate where that may uh, be coming from um. There's not a whole lot that you really want to say about this film before we get into spoilers, I would yeah, say. I, I feel um, like, yeah, the spoiler-free section is a little bit challenging. Yeah, I was going to be so, very vague and brief with so my overall thoughts. That, that's kind of yeah. what I was thinking. I thought we may go around and just give a quick um, quick reaction on what we thought, and we might as well just get right into the spoilers. So, Bo, why don't you kick us off? Well, I, I think I want to mention some of the previous movies by Jordan Peele again, uh, like Get Out and Us, and kind of compare those to this just at a, at a broad level, especially with like what the movie gives you to talk about after the fact. Um, Get Out had a lot of uh, commentary. Us had a lot of commentary that... Uh, required a lot of metaphor and allegory and symbolism um, that for me in us was actually kind of a lot of work. Uh, A lot of it was meaningful. A lot of it was impactful and smartly woven together. But I remember the experience of watching us was not just the experience of sitting down and watching the movie. It was also talking to people you saw it with afterwards. Mm -hmm. It was looking up uh, reviews online. It was reading articles about what do the holding hands mean? What do the jumpsuits mean? What do the scissors and the rabbits mean? Mm-hmm. All that stuff had symbolism. And it was this intricately woven tapestry that you had to kind of uncoil uh, to to get the full amount out of. It was necessary to do all that. 
And so I was wondering how much of a balance this movie, Nope, would have. And I actually really liked how much uh, this movie balances all that stuff, the symbolism and what things might allude to with the core of just having an exciting, thrilling summer movie that I could sit sit back and watch without having to uh, do all these, figure out all these parallels in my mind as I watched. So I liked the act of this, uh, the act of watching this movie, one for, you know, some of the symbolism and what things might mean and, and hypothesizing afterwards with my friend I saw it with. But uh, probably more so is just like a thrilling movie that uh, I uh, kept me on the edge of my seat. I actually held my breath in a lot of moments, um, felt my heart race, uh, heart pace go up, um, thought it was really re- well paced. Um, there were some great set pieces, imagery that is morbid and upsetting. I think the second shot in this movie is so shocking um, that I just couldn't get it out of my mind for the rest of the film. Um, so did, were you about to say something? I, like? I, I was going to say um, it, it has stuck with me as one of the most like, like, okay, we're ready for a movie mm-hmm. type of openings um, in terms of like a thrilling side. It, it remind. speaking of black phone, it reminded me a little bit of the feeling that I got the first time I saw Sinister mm-hmm. um, with the opening shot of the family hanging from the trees and then the mo- and then the title of it. Um, there's nothing really that's said in this opening part of of uh, nope, but just the the visceral just nature of what what has happened what yes. has happened. It grabs just, you. It grabs yeah. you, yeah. and you're like, oh, this is what we're doing yeah. right now. And the movie has indelible imagery, just like the previous two Jordan Peele films. Like Get Out had the sunken place and the crying eyes mm-hmm. and the deer antlers, very iconic imagery for that film. Us had all that stuff I mentioned, the tethered, the scissors, red jumpsuits, the rabbits. Nope has its own stuff. Mm-hmm. Nope has flags and the wacky, wavy, inflatable, arm-flailing tube men. <laughs> and uh, just a lot of the horse imagery um, is stuck in my mind. So I, uh, iconography and visuals cemented um, because of this film. And um, I think the movie is also a great example of how scares and horror can happen in wide open spaces in broad daylight sometimes. Mm -hmm. I think the trailer might hide a lot of the broad daylight uh, sequences that really thrilled me. And I think the performances are great. I think the movie also does an awesome job at establishing scale and geography. Mm -hmm. Uh, I understood very thoroughly how the ranch works, where it's placed, how big it is, where the neighboring ranch uh, slash amusement park that's Western themed. Yeah, is. Wild West Town. Wild yeah. West Town. <laughs> yeah. By the end of the movie, you get all that stuff, and the stakes are better established because of that. You know how far uh, characters need to go or how far apart they are from each other. Um, I think maybe my biggest complaint is some of the stuff in the third act. This movie kind of has a uh, a backdoor heist story that <laughs> that I didn't expect and might not be the most fitting thing compared to the first two acts for me. Um, and there are some characters that they kind of recruit for that third act, and you don't realize that they're being recruited for that until it's happening. It's like, oh, this is a backdoor heist movie, kind of. Mm-hmm. So trying to speak about that as vaguely as possible. Um, but overall, I really liked this. 
Uh, it might not be my favorite of Jordan Peele's filmography, but it's really close to Get Out for me. I think it would go Us and then Nope and then Get Out. Uh, I loved this. So, yeah. Perfect. Erica? Yeah. I Spoiler alert. I have like no real complaints about this movie. Really loved it. I have maybe a couple nitpicks and yeah, they're also kind of third act things. But even then, I think, you know, like, a lot of this played really well. I'm still thinking about um, a lot of elements from this. Like with with Get Out, there was definitely like a lot of clear, you know, like there was a clear social message and like there weren't any plot holes or loose ends really that I recall. Whereas Us had all these symbolic things that you could debate what they mean. And then I think Nope also has a lot of symbolism and, and subtext that you can debate, you know, the meaning of for sure, which makes it fun, which I probably why I've been thinking about it a lot and wish I had um, gone to see it a second time before this recording. But uh, I will see it again this week. Nice. <laughs> yeah, I I agree with both of you. I thoroughly enjoyed uh Nope. I thought it was very well done. Um I did uh, I do agree on the on the third act kind of having some some questionable story elements, I would say, maybe in just the direction that it maybe goes. Um and I also I, I kind of thought the first act was a little bit slow. Um there's a lot of scene setting, um but I think once we kind of get into it, I was fully invested in this film. Um, I think I agree that it's probably my second favorite uh, Jordan Peele uh, film with Get Out being my favorite. Mm -hmm. And I th loved Us as well. I yeah. mean, Lexi and I dressed up as um, version us versions oh, of ourselves awesome. for Halloween a couple of years ago. <laughs> I love that. Um, if you're friends with me on Facebook, you can see the pictures. Okay. Um, but, um, uh, but yes, I thought that honestly, both the first two things in this film, um, were very striking. Um, uh, both the, the very small, what would you Dang even say? 30 objects? second oh. snippet that you see at the very beginning. Yeah. And then also the first full scene with, we'll just call it the nickel scene. Sure. Uh -huh. Um, <laughs> were both just, they just grab you and they pull you into this world. And I think, um, that that's both in story and in cinematography. I thought this is, uh, Jordan Peele's best shot film in my opinion. Um, I will, uh, it's shot by the cinematographer Hoyt von Hoytem, uh, or Hoyt, I know I'm going to butcher the name. Um, but he has done tons of big things. He's, uh, he shot uh, Tenet and Dunkirk and interstellar for Christopher Nolan. He also did Ad Astra and Spectre and her and the fighter and let the right one in and nice. all these great, very visually, um, just magnificent films. And you kind of really see that, especially in the, the landscaping shots. Um, it's able to kind of build this grand world in kind of this uh, California countryside, but also the geography is like Bo was talking about very defined in that you, you understand where this world is and where the different landmarks are in relation to one another. And um, just when you're dealing with the subject matter that Nope is dealing with being able to kind of sit in the space and kind of just watch the sky essentially um, really just adds to just the overall atmosphere of this mm -hmm. film. Um I think that all the performances are very good in this. Uh, I want to, I mean the, the main 
two with Daniel Kaluuya and Kiki Palmer mm-hmm. give off very different energies, but are both very needed for kind of balancing each other out with kind of this stoic um, OJ character that Daniel Kaluuya is playing. And then also this very energetic bubbly M character that uh, Kiki Palmer is playing, but also shout out to um, Stephen Yun as Jupe, oh, who yeah. plays this yeah. very complicated character that we'll get more into oh, yeah. uh, in the spoiler section. And I also wanted to give a special shout out to Brandon Perea, who I read auditioned for this. He wasn't a person that was asked to be in it. He actually auditioned as um, a character named Angel, who was kind of a geek squad type of, <laughs> is that if you would kind of yeah, put him as, who gets kind of invested into um, what OJ and M are doing. Um, but great directing, great cinematography. I'll say uh, great appearance by Keith David. He's not in oh, the film yes. a ton, but love seeing him. So, yes. Uh, yeah. Keith, I was a little bit dis- disappointed by how little screen time Keith David has. Yeah. Um, but we'll get more into oh, yeah. There's something about him we can talk about uh-huh. as well. Um, but is there anything before we go into spoilers that you wanted to bring uh-huh. up? I'll just say since the, the third act kind of came up a couple times, although it might be the most pro- problematic section of the movie for some of us. I will say it did establish stakes that were understandable. Mm-hmm. It did introduce a plan and it introduced uh, surprises mm-hmm. to upset that plan and then solutions for those surprises. So I still found a lot of fun in that section. It was just, uh, I guess, one positive you could spin out of it is that it was unpredictable for me. Mm-hmm. So And a satisfying conclusion overall, I think. Yes, um, Which ultimately is as clunky as... I wouldn't say this is clunky, but as clunky as a third act can be, I think if you tie something up in a nice bow, yeah. it kind of uh, you can. It's easier to forget some of the the pitfalls that you no. may see in it. Yeah, I actually um, love like the last three minutes mm-hmm. of the movie. Fan- great, yeah, very good for sure. Um, Eric, did you have anything? Um, yeah, like a lot of the stuff that I really want to talk about does fall kind of in the spoiler zone. Perfect. Well, let's just get right into it. So. Um, We'll listen to the bumper, and we'll be right back with the spoiler section. Could it really be that simple? The secret lies with Charlotte. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Aren't you asking us to accept a pretty incredible coincidence? I'm just saying a coincidence is possible. And I say it's not possible. Where are those keys, Rose? You know I can't give you the keys, right, babe? Silent Green is people! The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist and like that he's gone and we're back with the spoilers of nope which when you're going into a jordan peele film i feel like you you just got to expect it you got to expect that there's going to be something something crazy that's going to happen so um who would like to what would you say the biggest spoiler of this is that the so Everybody, we haven't actually mentioned the words UFO or uh-huh. flying saucer or anything like that, but uh, it's assumed going into this movie that this is a UFO or like invasion, alien invasion kind of mm-hmm. movie, right? Yeah. Jordan Peele said that he was very inspired by Jaws, and I think that that is very apparent with what ends up being the case. Yes, yeah. yes. And that was the big twist for me as well. The big twist being that, yes, there is a flying saucer like thing in the sky that's scooping people up and eating them. But it is a, an organic creature. Yes. <laughs> that, it, that, it is, it is not that, a ship. It is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It uh, is the alien itself or some previously undiscovered terrestrial 
creature that's like an air monster or something. So, yeah, what you think are alien abductions? They're not abductions. No. Those people and horses are eaten, and it is that is one of the most They're terrifying sustenance. things <laughs> yeah. in the movie. It's a very, like, um, Amityville horror-style uh, <laughs> scene or something that I would think of where a, a, a crowd of people are eaten by the monster, oh, yeah. and I then there's just... This. <laughs> raining blood yeah. onto yep. the the main house um but i would say that's the the, the main spoiler of mm. this um how do you feel about that is that is that satisfying to you i am 100 percent okay with that twist uh, and it, then it does tie in like with that that one opening scene where you see like the destruction on this sitcom set caused by a chimp it ties in thematically with that that it's like can can we ever really understand, let alone tame animals? Apparently not. Um, so, I mean, that that works uh, very well, I think. And I, I do like the twist that what you think is a spaceship really is this huge creature that just vacuums stuff up and eats it. Um, kind it's the of, Kirby monster. Yeah, and, and it unfolds into something that's sort of like a cross between a stingray and a jellyfish. And it's just this huge, like, yeah. weird thing. I was thinking, like, if I recall correctly, with jellyfish, like, don't they they don't they have like basically one orifice that's their genitals, their mouth, and <laughs> their purpose. anus all in one <laughs> place? So the the fact it like eats and then either vomits or poops out the undigestible stuff all from the same orifice kind of makes sense. Like, I know that's just like a gross observation, but I love it. I was watching this like that reminds me of like what I read when I last visited the Henry Dorley zoo and looked at the jellyfish. <laughs> Shout out way. Henry Dorley zoo. Shout out to the children's zoo. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think while talking about kind of the undigestible stuff, we should talk oh, yeah. about the nickel scene, um, which is the Keith David scene. Um, is he shows up one other part in a, in a flashback, in a flashback and as it's, well. he's dreaming, he's having yes. a nightmare, or uh, he's remembering back, and this is after right after he's inherited the the ranch, yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. So, open that first scene is they're in the the corral, uh. They had a name for it in the movie, and I thought, oh, that that is what that must be called. But he's behind the fence in the circular fence and looking up in the clouds, and a nickel falls from the clouds and pierces his eye and kills him. And uh, OJ, um, Otis Jr., is there to observe it. Yes. Um, and they show it. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you see the damage. It, I was a little bit confused at first what was happening. I was too. You um, just see him like just slump over and then fall off of a horse. And you don't really see what happened to him until you see him in the hospital. And, and then you see him. Uh, OJ is, oh, yeah. is talking to him and like trying to keep him awake and he's responding to him. Yeah. So you're kind of confused about, cause you didn't see that it fall, fell into his eye. You think maybe it just like hit him on the head or something like that. But then you later discover when they show his body that he has this giant like it's, laceration type of yeah, thing like in his eye split his, split his eye, eye in half, half. <laughs> um it is is very grim um but between that and then also the opening scene of the gordy's home <laughs> incident um which i found terrifying mm -hmm. um that was a, a kind of a, mo a motif that when th well throughout the mo movie they're kind of talking about the different horses in the um on the ranch and they're kind of showing a little screen that says the name of the horse. And then they kind of go into more detail on 
what's eventually going to happen with that particular horse. And then you're, you've kind of been hearing about the Gordy's home incident. The, the Stephen Young character Jupe um, was a child star that was on this show. And basically it was a, a very popular kind of nineties style sitcom about a, a family who had a pet chimp. That's kind of the extent of the information you get on it. Um, and there was an incident on set where um, a balloon pops and the chimp essentially loses its cool and um, is very violent and um, it murders the the father on the show and severely dam- um, injures. Yeah, disfigures. Disfigures mm-hmm. the, the main actress on the show, which I thought she was dead. That's what um, I thought at first. My too. understanding is that Gordy kills two characters and disfigures. A I third. would assume it's the the two parents, the yeah. mom and the dad, right. and then mm-hmm. and then disfigures the 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 sister character. Um, but but then there's a title screen later in the in the film where you see Gordy's name pop up on there, and when that when that title screen popped up, I was like so locked and ready like mm-hmm. to go because yeah. like i was like i want to know what happened <laughs> like because i i'm I'm a, I'm a sucker for kind of that parody version of 90s sitcoms yeah. um because you see it online in in kind of meme culture but also uh if you're familiar with the too many cooks video that came out a few years ago which is actually the cheddar goblin guy from ah, mandy okay <laughs> um which is a a parody of that where it's just continuously people talking in a conversation and then turning to the screen and smiling and having their name pop up uh, on the bottom okay. of the screen. Sure. Yeah. Um, very in kind of a, uh, what would you say? Full house sure, yeah. style, 90 sitcom, 90 sitcom thing. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it just turns and you see Gordy just start attacking and, um, and it leads to this very violent scene, which I was a very surprised that they wouldn't have animal control sooner. Yeah, I guess. Right. Um, he's just kind of on site, they and there's a living daughter of, on the show is just very injured, and there's nobody there. They mentioned that when that incident happened, didn't they say it was like season two, episode nine? Mm-hmm. So they had Something gotten like this. That. They had gotten potentially you know, maybe 20 some episodes in season one that this never happened. And they also said that Gordy was played by multiple chimps too. Mm-hmm. So this was just one of the chimps that acted out in this way after hearing the balloon pop. Yeah. Right. And, and so, um, in that scene too, um, you, you see him murder the father. You kind of assume that the, that the daughter is dead, but, but we find out that that's not true. And there's a very, um, I think it'll stick with a lot of people. Mm-hmm. The fist pump or fist bump, yeah. Um, where that was kind of a, a something that apparently happened on the show is that um, Jupe would fist bump the chimp, and so when the chimp, after going on this violent rampage, sees him hiding underneath the table, and he comes over and puts his fist out to fist bump him, yeah. and right in that moment, <laughs> he gets shot down yeah. by, yeah. I assume animal control or police or whoever would do something someone like finally that. Come, came, yeah. Um, but I just, that has stuck with me. Um, and that was actually based on somewhat of a true story. Uh, Did you want to go into this? Okay. So, um, yeah, well first I kind of want to go to like, might be some symbolic, um, stuff with the whole, the whole fist bump, uh, you know, thing following the massacre. So, um, yeah, like there's a couple, at least a couple ways you could interpret this. One is, um, well, 
when when you briefly see that in the trailer, I thought it was kind of a reference to E.T. where they're like touching fingers. <laughs> oh, that's so good. Which wow. in turn is based on the famous painting in the Sistine Chapel called sure. The Creation of Adam, uh, in which like the finger touch shows communion between God and Adam. So it's like, you know, God and mankind. So my friend I, who I watch this with, who's a professor at UNL, uh, pointed out that because this gesture was interrupted by the chimp being shot, there is no true communion between mankind and animals. Oh, interesting. But okay. another okay. way yeah. you could look at it is that, um, is that the interrupted fist bump actually has no meaning whatsoever in itself. It's just something that chimp was trained to do repeatedly for multiple episodes of the show. So unfortunately for Jupe, um, he sees significance in this gesture that may not actually have significance. And he thinks that because he was the only one left unharmed during this tragedy, that he has some kind of special bond or invincibility around wild animals. And this is why he makes a very terrible decision <laughs> later in the film that ends up killing him and a whole bunch of spectators including yeah. the the including the, daughter the, including the actress, the actress who actress. survived the chimp yeah. attack but with a horribly disfigured face i have to mention with that though i think that when you said that wasn't this based on a true story there was um a woman featured on oprah yes that, whose face yep. was like ripped off by uh, her friend or sister's pet chimp i can't remember uh, the relationship there but yes th this woman was wearing a very similar hat with a veil and then oprah had a big reveal moment where she you know um this woman pulls the, the veil up and you see what her face looks like although in this case there had been a lot of plastic surgery which didn't really help a whole lot at that time she mm -hmm. had like a lot of graphs like from her thigh that then became like this blob where her nose should be and it was like very startling and this chimp like ripped this woman's eyes out too Oof. so she was just blind the rest of her life it was uh, it's that tragic. that moment at the at jupe's show when mm -hmm. you know you see brief glimpses of her face because the veil's flapping in the wind there's two kinds of horror there there's like the disfiguration mm -hmm. that's just scary on the surface but then there's the part of it where you're imagining what if you were in that scenario mm -hmm. like what would be done to the face to make it look like that exactly too? Right. so it works on a couple ways it, it does and i i kind of feel like there's this big theme in this movie about spectacle and people exploiting tragedies for fame or mm -hmm. for money or that kind of thing so with Jupe, he's he's kind of exploiting his his own traumatic experience, and you can tell he's still traumatized by it. But he's profiting from it. He has yeah. this room full of um, items from that you know, the fateful day on set when yes. the chimp went crazy. His whole hidden room. So yeah, <laughs> and, I, uh, and he like sold tickets so people could spend the night there. Yeah, so yeah. Like, that's kind of wild. Paid him like it was like a hundred thousand dollars to sleep in that room for one night yeah. or something like that. Uh, yeah. And. Uh, yeah, he's a fascinating character. Like, I, I feel like they definitely could have gone more into his story, or, or but it's like, I want more of this character. He's like, definitely an interesting, uh, mm -hmm. definitely an interesting mm -hmm. one. But the other, another fascinating thing is like, I don't know if it's just because the, the direct memory of it is too painful, but when M asks him about, you know, what, what happened on the set or, you know, what was that like, he filters, instead of telling her what he directly witnessed, he filters it through. Oh, watch this SNL, SNL. skit. Shout yeah. out Chris Kattan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My reading on that is that, so I also think that he sees an invincibility with mm -hmm. himself, like mm -hmm. an immunity. That was what my friend and I talked about after seeing this movie. Like we went back to the Jupe character over and over because he's a thread that goes through the first two acts like repeatedly. Yeah. And that was my reading is he sees himself as special. 
He Mm -hmm. wants to profit off this. There's a greed there maybe. Um, But then also, is this a coping mechanism? Is him treating it through, like looking at it through the SNL lens and kind of being a little distance Mm -hmm. uh, from it one step away? Is that him? uh, Is that telling us he's actually horrified by it, uh, traumatized by it? He's still looking at it in the face, but maybe through a lens, uh, Mm -hmm. maybe Mm -hmm. not directly. Not directly looking at it. Yeah, also an important theme in the film. But I just want to say about that whole theme is kind of the monetizing trauma side of this of this. Um, because we've talked about Steven Yun. Um even the 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 actress from the show, she's wearing a sweater with her character yes. on it. What, so what ob- she looked like before what she, she was looked like before she I was did disfigured. Not catch that. That's oh, yeah. so, I was looking a little bit higher up at her that's face. That's fair. Uh, <laughs> um, but obviously she's trying to like show like, hey, this is who I was. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously she's willing to go out in public, so she's not hiding herself away from it, which could also be seen as like a like look at this tragedy, like maybe someone she wants to take advantage of it, maybe potentially it could also be just seen as she's friends with the mm-hmm. Jube character and wanted to be right. there. Um, but you also see a, a TMZ person come who, who finds out about this situation because of this ranch's uh, tragedy. When, when the, the cloud monster essentially eats an entire crowd of people um, the cinematographer that they hire on to kind of document um, the the alien uh, kind of snaps at one point and kind of wants to go and get the perfect shot. Essentially, you could see this as mm-hmm. him trying to take advantage of the situation. And there's even a conversation at a dinner table uh, in the film where they're talking about like, um, like we could save lives, but we could also make money and we could also become famous. Like they always Mm -hmm. talk about the Oprah moment. Mm -hmm. They're trying to get the Oprah shot. And even though they have seen the tragedy that has happened with this, with this monster, they're still wanting to kind of benefit from it financially and uh, in fame. And I think that's kind of the through line theme throughout this entire film. Yeah. So what, what I kept thinking about with the, uh, it actually doesn't, I guess um, what's the nickname they gave it? Uh, at the in the third um, act, based on the horse, Jean, Jean jacket. 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 So Jean Jacket and Gordy, the connection there for me is that those two creatures cause really horrific things to happen, mm-hmm. and it happens so often enough that it's like a like normalized terror. It's mm-hmm. this thing that's happening every day in this in this part of California. It's part of life there. And what I I read it as is. Uh, it's about how if we look um, at the horrors of every day, if we choose to look, we're only going to suffer. Um, and it made me think about, you know, horrible, horrific news headlines, how you could just sit there and doom scroll on your phone mm-hmm. at uh, all the bad headlines every day. And what is that going to do? It's going to inform you, but it's probably also going to be uh, mentally unhealthy to do mm-hmm. too much of that. And so that's what I read in- into with that. You also think back to Otis Sr. When he looks up into the sky, he's actually talking about, I think he's talking about how to take their family business forward or how to make sure the next gig goes Mm -hmm. extra well. That's one reason I'd like to rewatch this movie actually Mm -hmm. is to see what he's saying specifically. But he is looking up, which our our hero characters learn is a bad thing. He's Mm -hmm. looking up and it's his demise. And Mm -hmm. um, uh, Jupe, when the chimp is going crazy on people, he is hiding under a table. He's not looking. Mm-hmm. And he's 
kind of saved. Um, so there's there's a lot of connections there. And it's, again, going back to what I said in the, the pre-spoiler section is you can have these conversations and understand what all that symbolism means, but it's not crucial to enjoying the experience, which uh, I just thought it was a great balance of all that stuff. I agree. Um, I, I also just wanted to do a, a quick thing. I thought it was interesting. They do talk about the, the SNL sketch thing. And I wanted to bring up that Jordan Peele was famously got his start on mad TV. Um, I wonder <laughs> if there was oh, some, uh, if the, the SNL people, how they would feel about this reference kind of saying like, Oh, like we are downplaying tragedy yeah. by calling us out by name or maybe, I mean, he could have very easily said, did you see the mad TV sketch or something right. like that? Yeah. But he maybe didn't want to throw his, <laughs> his former show there under the bus. A mad magazine cover that was created. That was on the wall. That's that, true. Yeah. <laughs> that is true. Um, so maybe there's the shot there, but I just thought that was a very interesting little side since mm-hmm. Jordan Peele also got his start on sketch comedy. Yeah, that's, that's an astute mm-hmm. observation. Love yes. that. Very interesting. Um, but were there any other major spoilers that we wanted to go over? I guess uh, one thing I wrote down is I like little payoffs in this movie, and these aren't too spoilery, but they talk about their history with helping on movie sets, and they mention how Otis Sr. helped with the Scorpion King Mm -hmm. or something. Later in the movie, you see Otis Jr. wearing a Scorpion King crew uh, sweatshirt, that that bright orange sweatshirt he's wearing. Um, There is Emerald doing the pitch in -hmm. one of the first scenes, um, doing her scripted monologue about her family about that guy on the horse how he was the first person captured on film and Mm -hmm. he's their ancestor Mm -hmm. and how they take a lot of pride in that and more people should recognize that and then there's the scene like 90 minutes later in the film where you catch her watching the vhs tape of her dad doing that same spiel Mm -hmm. and it's why she doesn't say that extra great Uh because she talks about he's our great great grandfather and he's like extra great great. it's because she's his daughter. She mm-hmm. didn't add the great. I just mm-hmm. love that. It's so smart. And it's a blink and you miss it thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also uh, the payoff of the winking well in the the Western town, how that becomes how we solve this. It's so fun. So interesting. I never would have expected that. No, I, I kind of thought that the that we were done with the Wild West Um, that actually becomes like the place we need to get to and that's mm -hmm. why i'm glad they established the scale and geography Mm -hmm. so well uh leading up to that because when jean jacket was chasing uh emerald on the motorcycle i was like i know how far she needs to go Mm -hmm. like and it's showing us too so just masterfully Mm -hmm. done sequence Uh, another nice touch that ends up being really creepy it's just like Early in the film, when you see that shape moving through the clouds, there's like this this shrill, like shrieking sound, and you just think, "Oh, is this like just some spaceship noise?" Yes. No, it is the it's the screams of people and animals who are being digested. Yeah, it is so screaming. that is so yeah. dark. Ugh. And in a finger snap, it can just crush them all. Yeah, too. like there was that time when all the voices and, stopped in unison. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was it, so chilling. That reminded me of um, Under the Skin. Yeah. A little bit. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, good point. That type of just like instant swallowing, essentially. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. Uh, very. Yeah. This is this is definitely Jordan Peele's most like visceral film. Like the violence or like the different things that happen in it, I think stick with you more than any other film. Like you look at something like Us, which is essentially kind of like a. 
it almost has a slasher feel to it at times in that it's just like the the uh, Elizabeth Moss character and the Tim Heidecker character and then like they just kind of get killed off one by one yeah. and you would think oh that would be like Jordan Peele's violent kind of mm-hmm. horror movie type of thing but the but the things that happen in this in uh <laughs> in Nope just kind of grab a hold of you in a way that I don't think any of his other films have in terms of violence oh yeah <laughs> um even if it's not even shown yeah. Like, uh, and I think that's just so yeah. well done. Like sometimes it's the stuff you're imagining is happening, but exactly. not seen on screen. That's like, ooh, yeah. that's I mean, just... really all the Gordy's home stuff is pretty hidden. Is mm-hmm. pretty hidden. It's obscured. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you're filling in the gaps in your mind. The the direct shot though inside the creature with seeing the people uh, yeah. sliding mm-hmm. through. When they're like su- getting sucked up into God, the screaming. creature's and digestive then, tract or whatever. Like the last frame of that shot you see a skull that I think it's a horse think it's skull. A horse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like oh that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. It explains where the one horse went. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, one scene I loved in particular was when Emerald's playing the loud music in the house and uh, Otis Jr. goes out on his horse and it cuts between the two and you're seeing her playing the music. It cuts back to him. You hear the music in the distance. And then he looks the complete opposite direction. So you're getting this like start, middle, and end point. That was mm-hmm. one of the moments that just filmmaking-wise, I thought that was so well done. And it's mm-hmm. just atmospheric. Yeah. I loved that scene. Yeah. I mean, just Jordan Peele doing his thing. Just yeah. uh, being a master. And I think scope-wise, mm-hmm. this is just his most grand. Um, and I mean... We've been talking a lot about kind of the the horror aspects of it, but this is definitely more of a sci-fi film than anything else and and kind of him branching out into something that's a little bit different than what he would normally do, but still kind of having that connective tissue from from his previous two films. Uh, Erica, did you have anything else that you wanted to talk about? So I haven't looked into this myself. I I wonder if um, Jordan Peele did a lot of research into UFO lore when he made this. Um, I'm not super into that myself, but uh, my Russian friend Andre lives in a UFO hotspot and he's seen like a bunch of strange lights and objects in the sky. And tell him not to look up though. Yeah. 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 (laughs) So like for some reason that, that region has a lot of that phenomenon. So he's really interested in reading different theories about what they could be. And um, he has read stories about um, localized reigns of like blood and bits of flesh and body parts and animal you know, parts and things like that. He's like, Oh yeah. Sky creature, you know, sky monsters that, you know, eat people. It's like, yeah, that's a thing. Well, tell him to I'm use like, a hand crank IMAX camera yes. so that he, <laughs> so can, he capture can capture it properly. It in case, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't think the the blood rain thing happened in Kabarovs, but he's like followed stories about it happening in Man, other regions. Be like, no, this is just a normal day in Russia, right? <laughs> probably, yeah. Considering it probably is pretty. Oh yeah, difficult. it just rains blood here all the time. Um, <laughs> oh man, but. Um, I think we covered basically everything that I wanted to to go over. Um, ultimately, we kind of all were singing its praise. Um, definitely go out and see this. I know that I am going to see it again. Um, you both have said that you want to see it again. Yeah. Um, definitely worth your time. Um, see it in the in the theater, maybe even. Absolutely, it's a I great mean, summertime thrilling for, movie. Yeah, yeah. I saw it at the Draft House. It was a lot of fun. Um, they showed the preview for Scorpion King before it. And I was like, what is this all about? And then it was, and it showed old, um, Chris Kattan mango or, um, 
is that what the character is? The the character sure. where he plays the monkey essentially on <laughs> SNL. And I was like, these are very strange. I don't understand why they're doing this. And it all made sense afterwards. Yeah. Um, but that is Nope. Um, go out and see it. Uh, so next episode, we've kind of been throwing around a couple ideas for, for <laughs> movies. Uh, we've thrown out Bullet Train. We've thrown out Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. Um, so it'll probably be one of those two. We'll probably end up talking about both of them anyway on, on it. Um, but, but yeah, if, if that's all that you have to say, um, we'll see you at the movies. This episode was recorded in the studios of KZUM 89.3 FM in Lincoln, Nebraska. You can find out more about KZUM and listen to more episodes of Cinema Roundtable by visiting kzum.org. Our theme music was composed by Joshua Spaulding.